uh, behalf of uh, the Council for Africa, I'm welcoming you all to this session, this evening session here at Kulturhuset. Um, we're going to have uh, an interesting talk about an interesting subject, which is uh, the chosen subject and focus of uh, the Council for Africa's campaign this year. So uh, they have a migration campaign, and that campaign has three events this week. Um, it's uh, the event that you are just now attending, and there is also a breakfast meeting, and there is also uh, another evening event, which is on Thursday. So my name is Asta Businge. I'm a Ugandan-Norwegian artist, writer, and moderator. So I'm going to be moderating the talk with our two panelists. So um, there are many good reasons for having migration on the African continent as the focus of a talk. Um, one of them is that there are myths surrounding migration, myths like everybody wants to go to Europe. Another reason is um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a possibility to look at how inter-African migration is affecting the development of the continent. So, um, I'm going to introduce the two panelists. Dr. Nalawembe Binaisa is a Ugandan interdisciplinary scholar and she's also a filmmaker and a photographer. Uh, she's lived in the UK for years, where she's now uh, based at um, University College London. Um, she has contributed to some very relevant research in this context um, at the International Migration Institute at the University of Oxford. And in today's panel talk, we're going to focus uh, mainly on two of the projects. One is called Mobility in the African Great Lakes. And the other one is called African Diasporas Within Africa, or in Africa. So um, if there is someone here who's not familiar with, with uh, the Great Lakes concept, in the African context, we're talking about a region in East Africa that includes Burundi, DRC Congo, Kenya, Malawi, Rwanda, Tanzania, and Uganda. So please give Dr. Benaisa a warm welcome. And um, the other guest is Marn Sabe. She's a Norwegian freelance journalist and commentator. And um, she grew up in Norway and in Angola. And she has a degree in history from the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. Marn is here, uh, and we're looking forward to hearing your views on this issue. Um, she has uh, earned a number of awards for her work as a journalist, and she's the founder and editor of a website, yes, called Bundu, specializing, uh, I mean, specializing in, in covering the African continent, uh, I could say in nuanced, and non-stereotypical ways. So please give Marn a hand. So um, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, 
UNTAD, uh, puts migration at the, uh, on the African continent at um, 25 million as of today. Uh, but mobility on the African continent is not something new. Um, uh, a little while back, I was reading this old article by Achille Mbembe, who is like one of the uh, Africa's greatest intellectuals. And it's, one of, it's an old article from 2007, which is uh, called Afropolitanism. Uh, and he points out that the African continent has always been characterized by mobility and the intermingling of cultures. So I'd like to start with Marne. Uh, because she's a historian. Um, could you tell us a bit about the history of mobility in Africa in general and in Southern Africa in particular? I, I think I'm going to start sort of uh, the past like two or three hundred centuries and not take like thousands of years. Uh, but um, we normally say that Southern Africa uh, developed through a migration system. Um, especially after the, the, the coming first of the Dutch and, and, and then the English, but also the other uh, colonial powers. Uh, the way they developed a system that became South Africa and what became apartheid was through a um, migrant working system uh, that involved both Mozambique, Zambia, Zimbabwe, or what they were called in those days. But um, so, so you see that the whole way that uh, Southern Africa was developed since like the 1800s has been based on moving people around for the benefit of um, big plantations and mining industry. That has a huge impact of the societies we know today in, in all of Southern Africa. Uh, uh, the migrants working system in, in South Africa still exists. South Africa still have a lot of both migrants that are working and other migrants. Um, Countries like Lesotho and Mozambique are completely dependent on that migrant working system. Uh, and we see how the, both the roads, the railroads and everything towards sort of um, are, are there as a uh, means to get people to these central places for work, especially Johannesburg. Um, this sort of development through uh, migrant work uh, was not sort of a peaceful development. It was forced in many ways. Uh, it was forced by the companies that, that run the colonies of, of Mozambique and Rhodesia especially. It was forced by, um, what they basically did was having a lot of companies that sort of um, run parts of what's today Mozambique and what's today Zambia, Zimbabwe, uh, these companies forced people to, to go and work in what's today South Africa. Uh, and that was the start of, of, of this kind of migrant pattern. This migrant pattern, as I said, it's still in, in place today. Uh, although both plantations and mining industry, they need less workforce today than they used to. So, so what you get is a migrant pattern that still exists, but doesn't have sort of the same outcome. It doesn't exist in the same way. Um, this sort of, it, it sort of, it, 
it makes Southern Africa a very interesting sort of region to look at when we, you talk about migration because it, it's, it's so much part and parcel of all development in the region and it's also so, uh, it, such a big part of history. And it's also, I wouldn't say explanation, but it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why we do see the society you have in South Africa today, which is, is basically a bit unhinged sometimes. Um, for other regions, you, you do have the same pattern. Uh, I know they've been moving around people for, for work in Eastern Africa. They've done it in, in, in uh, of course, Central and Western, like Angola or Congo. They moved people back and forth for, for work. And today, also in West Africa, you see a movement towards Nigeria, uh, from smaller economies towards bigger economies. So, so um, one tends to see Africans as very rooted or very sort of not so mobile. But it, in fact, for 150 years, it's been an extremely mobile continent, uh, partly helped by a system of, of work migration. So you're pointing at some of the forced migration, mm. which eventually people became dependent on in order to make a living, that people would leave their families to go and work in the mines, they would leave their children to be brought up by grandparents, those type of things. Mm. Um, but uh, as you say, we still have this type of an image, perhaps, of Africans living in villages and being very kind of connected to their past and and not being so mobile. So I was wondering, could you say something more about the myths that we have? Uh, I was reading a quote by UNCTAD Secretary General Mukisa Kitui, and he says, much of the public discourse, particularly as it relates to international African migration, is rife with misconceptions that have become part of a divisive, misleading, and harmful narrative. I was wondering if you could both just, you know, expand a bit on that. Do you want to start? <laughs> well, I, I guess um, um, one has this idea, as you say, that, uh, that the Africans are very rooted, but when in fact uh, there's been huge mobility on the continent for a long time. Uh, I think it's easy for, for politicians to exploit that kind of idea of, of rootedness. Uh, it's not that easy to actually try to be a politician for all these people who move because they tend to not be very loyal voters. <laughs> well, they move uh, and might not have the vote where they go. Um, so, so it's it's... I think the idea of the sort of African village as well, uh, which is a very sort of romantic and uh, an idea that we see through, especially nationalist discourse uh, during decolonization, um, sort of it never existed. Uh, it was never there, uh, and but it's 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 an idea that's very forceful to exploit by those who want to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite good we started with South Africa or the southern southern part of uh, Africa. Um, it is actually the most urbanized part of, of the continent, uh, specifically because of these uh, long-standing 
industrial uh, labor complexes that at first coerced people and ultimately created that kind of chain migration and dependency on labor migration to, um, to, these, uh, to the resource extractive economy. Um, and so I think the other thing is I, I like to also think about um, commonalities. And one of the commonalities, apart from urbanization, industrialization, if you think about what, what encourages people to be mobile in, in the European context, another one is life stage. You know, younger people tend to move more than older people because of their aspirations, or what they're looking for in life. Um, they have a, a dream of a good life or, or a dream of adventure or a dream to go and see, you know. So, those, those are not things which are unique to Africans compared to Europeans. And I think those commonalities are also part of us thinking through and understanding what's going on on the continent. But um, most people, I think, in Norway, for instance, they relate to this idea of migration as, uh, as a, a, a force that is threatening to Europe um, and that all these hordes of people, the millions and millions of, of uh, migrants and refugees in the world, they all want to come here. So this is one of the myths that I think you should comment on. Yeah, I, I've, I've done quite a lot of comment on that, exactly I, that I, one. But <laughs> I, well, I mean, I think, start. well, the two projects we worked on um, well, while I was at Oxford, which um, ones, the, the ones that uh, Asta mentioned, is both were really thinking about this you know, fact, which is that most Africans move to another African country. But we have very little research looking at these phenomena um, because of the fact that the anxiety is around migration out of the continent to the global north, when in fact most of the migration, both refugee flows, flows people you know, looking for protection, as well as uh, people moving as economic migrants or or um, migrating for education uh, or for family reasons, those people are moving within the continent. And so we try to, in the diasporas project, try to understand, do they also form diasporas, which is usually a concept we use when we're talking about uh, groups outside the continent. And with the mobility in the Great Lakes project, we're moving away from the word migration to more think about mobility, because that way you also capture movements which might not be very long-term, but could be precursors to particular trends, because some people may go to, let's say, for example, from East Africa to South Africa for education, fully intending that they will return, let's say, to Kenya. But that a job opportunity comes up, or they fall in love, and before you know it, that's now a more permanent destination. So we were trying to understand even because uh, the group we looked at was were people from Eastern DRC who, because of long-standing conflict, are usually only studied as refugees. We're trying to understand how do more ordinary um, drivers or reasons for mobility kind of intersect with conflict. Were you going to go anyway, or was conflict the thing that gave you the push to leave? Mm. So. Would you like to comment on the myths? because I'm uh, kind of slowly steering uh, to the next issue. 
Uh, yeah, about the myth that everybody's coming here, or uh, I think it's it's uh, it's a common uh, European myth. We have the same myth about Asians in the 1970s. Um, but like my colleagues here, it's it's very few that actually want to go to Europe. It's very few that's actually coming here of all those people moving around and. Most of those who actually come here, they come here for, a, a lot of them come on a study permit and some on a working permit. Um, they certainly don't come to Norway. They, they, they go to their own colonial um, powers. Um, French speaking students, they go to France to study. Uh, and English speakers, they go to Great Britain. That's sort of, so the typical African migrant in Europe is a one that studies uh, at a university, or maybe one that works as a nurse. Um, a, a small number of them come by boat. Um, actually, most people that has come across the Mediterranean by a boat, those we see in pictures in, in Norwegian media, for instance, most of them have been North Africans and Middle Eastern for the past 10 years. Uh, but there's been sort of a steady trickle of, of sort of sub-Saharan uh, Africans as well on those boats, but, but not in the same numbers as we saw from the Middle East. Um, so I think sort of what we've seen emerging, especially since 2015 because of these boats, is, is some idea that uh, every unemployed youth in West Africa is, is, is getting to Libya or now Morocco and, and sort of going on a rubber binghy. Uh, very few of them actually do that. Both those who are forced and those who, who, who move for work. It is regarding um, refugees in the world, for instance, it is the general trend actually that, I mean, most of them never do uh, go to Europe or the UK, I mean, to the US or something. Most of them stay in the region uh, maybe neighboring country from the one they fled from. So, um, but I think these myths are quite common. Um, so, um, I want us uh, to talk about Uganda. Um, I'm a Norwegian Ugandan. You're a Ugandan almost, mm -hmm. um, and, but almost you've become a British, I don't know. I'm dual citizen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, but the reason I want to talk about Uganda is not because our family background is from Uganda. I want to talk about Uganda because a few years ago, I think many of us read these articles, which were like, uh, Uganda is the most refugee-friendly nation on earth. So uh, today, there are about like 1.4 million uh, refugees in Uganda. So, um, and most of them are from South Sudan. Uh, the second largest group is from DRC Congo. So uh, we see that at least in East Africa, war and conflict is a major driving force to make people uh, get pack up and leave. Um, I just want us to watch a small, small video clip, um, which is from one of the projects that you've been involved in. Um, it's uh, a film uh, by the Refugee Law Project at Makerere University in Uganda. And um, uh, this project and the film is part of the project Mobility in African Great Lakes, okay? And this is, uh, I'm going to show you this clip and later another clip. This clip is people who are fleeing from war 
and who find themselves in Uganda's capital, Kampala. Oh, it's hard to watch. Um, you were involved in this project about mobility. These people are refugees. What is it that you've found uh, through researching and interviewing uh, people like them? Okay, like I said earlier, we were trying to understand when conflict is an intervening factor um, in a situation where people might also have other reasons to move. And we were also trying to understand the role of urbanization. So the research was held in Kampala, in Eldoret in Kenya, and in Lubumbashi in uh, the southern tip of uh, DRC Congo, DR Congo. So um, what we found, so all these people are coming from Eastern DRC. In Lubumbashi, historically, people had always, not always, but those who sought the opportunities to work in the mines, um, the big copper mines which are in Katanga, they migrated from, um, from Eastern DRC to Lubumbashi. So it has, this, it has the second most important uh, economy um, in term after Kinshasa, after the capital. And uh, so there are those historic movements. There's also the, the pull of the, of the education, higher education sector. Um, and then there's also the conflict. So one of the reasons people move somewhere is either they've previously got networks there, they have the ability to get there, um, but also it's important to remember that a lot of people stay put, even in situations of conflict. They're actually stuck and they can't go anywhere or, or they don't want to go. They find it too emotionally difficult to leave. Um, so in Kampala, uh, it, it is still that with the Congolese, the biggest factor is the continuing conflict. But also there's mixed reasons. There's people who would like to go back but aren't able to go back because, because of the insecurity in the country and how, um, the, how disrupted the economy has become, even if they have a profession. Like there's uh, a doctor, a Congolese doctor, who started um, a scheme to help people who have been qualified as nurses and doctors in the, in the Congolese system, which is francophone, don't forget to regularize their qualifications in the Ugandan system. So he started that training initiative, and he's been in Uganda for more than 10 years. Um, so there is many, uh, there's, there's both the fact of, um, and, the, and there is also the fact of uh, resources. So somebody like this family, who are already extremely poor, their, their opportunities are, are very limited in terms of both a livelihood and a, as well as opportunities for their children. So there, there are also those discrepancies. This, this category of refugee or migrant is not just one uh, undifferentiated container. Within it, um, people are on different standards of education, training, um, social capital, who they know, who can help them, as well as depending on the country they end up in, I mean, the reason why Uganda's got this reputation of being uh, a refugee-friendly country, it, in, the, in the East African region, it's the country that allows refugees to self-settle. So you don't have to stay in the camps. If you want to come into the city, if you want to move to another part of Uganda and try to make your livelihood there, you can. Except it just means that if you leave the camp, you will not get that uh, stipend from UNHCR. You know, you're seen as self-settled.
Um, Marn, you just uh, went to a refugee camp in August this year on the border between uh, DR Congo and Uganda. And you said, told me that in the camp there were people, of course, from DR Congo, but also people from a lot of other East African countries. And I noticed that what he was talking about was it's not like it's one war and then you flee and it's like a one-time thing. It's something that has just, it's, it's been his life. He has been fleeing and then going and coming back and forth, back and forth, and never having rest. Because these conflicts, they, they blow up and then they, they kind of, you know, pull back and then, you know, he's in this cycle in a way. So, uh, could you tell me a bit about some of the stories you heard when you visited this camp? I think there's a there's a slight difference, as you said, between those who stay in the camp and those who actually go to Kampala or further. Um, uh, in well, the camp I was on on the border is called Kiangwali. It's just by Lake Albert, uh, so it's very close to to Congo, and it had a recent influx from Ituri. Uh, some of these people are coming over to seek medical help. They're very scared of Ebola uh, because there's Ebola in that area. Um, a lot of those people I talked to who had stayed there for a while, maybe like for a conflict or two, uh, are people who got stuck there after some crisis in Burundi or Rwanda. There was South Sudanese there, or Sudanese who had been there since like the 1980s. Um, further north, in Adjumani, you said you'd been to, to some of the camps up there. Among the South Sudanese, you will find people that go back and forth all the time. There are people that have been sort of refuged for the fourth time. Uh, there are people that have stayed in the camps, but their husbands still go in and do their business in South Sudan. Uh, but they stay in the camps because there's food from the UNHCR and there's schools. Uh, in Equatoria, in South Sudan, that province, the schools are closed. There's absolutely no sort of future and they don't trust the government, so they won't go back. But they send their husbands. Uh, so, so what you can find in, in all these camps and also in Kampala is, is sort of a, a map of all refugees in, in Eastern Africa. You can find those who have been out for decennium or since the 60s, uh, since massacres in, in Rwanda and Burundi in the 1960s. And you will find those who were displaced last year in Congo or those who came because of the Ebola uh, a couple of months ago. Um, so you find the poor uh, among the South Sudanese. You will find everything from ministers to, to all those villages that got forcibly uh, displaced two years ago. Um, so so, so it's, it's sort of interesting as well. Um, like you said, Uganda is sort of profiling itself as a nice guy when it comes to refugees. They, they, they give uh, permission to, to settle and all that. Uh, at the same time, they're making quite a lot of money on this. Um, and there is, those camps and their surroundings are not as conflict-free as the Ugandan government wants everybody to, to sort of know. Um, there are a lot of tensions inside camps, tensions between uh, neighbor, sort of neighboring, uh, well, what they call host communities and, and camps. And, uh, those tensions will always increase when you have a large influx, like you had from DRC last year. 
so I think sort of, in a way, some of those camps in Uganda is like a small, um, you can call it like a small, uh, yeah, small map of, of everything that's happening in East Africa when it comes to especially forced migration, but also migration uh, because of lack of opportunities in the areas they come from. Um, I find it interesting also that you see some of the same dynamic um, sometimes uh, where people who are refugees don't want to kind of admit, like they try to become as integrated or assimilated as possible. Uh, and I know that for some Rwandese in, in Uganda, it's still like that with even some young people whose parents or, you know, came as refugees a generation ago or two, that they, they kind of underplay it because they want to, um, they want to be accepted as like real Ugandans. Um, but I would like to move from the refugee issue because the issue of mobility is much bigger than that as you've both touched on. So I want us to watch another clip which shows um, some other types of groups who have moved uh, from DRC and find themselves in Kampala for very different reasons. So um, very different types of um, uh, people. Yeah. who have, uh, they're in part referring to the conflicts and the wars, but uh, they also have other aspirations and other reasons for wanting to move. And it could be that some of them would have moved even if there was no war. Yeah, I mean, for, well, D DR Congo is a very big country. And for the Eastern DRC, their orientation in terms of routes to market is to the rest of us in East Africa even though we're Anglophone. So their nearest port is Mombasa in Kenya. So in fact, when the Congolese we interviewed in Eldoret, all of them are considered labor migrants because actually it's impossible for them to, acclaim, to claim asylum in Kenya. Otherwise, if they claim asylum in Kenya, they'll be put in a camp. So what, are they, what, what most of them were doing is they were working on the, on the route from Mombasa back to Goma uh, or for the tankers, because the, 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 the petrol tankers, uh, um, sorry, the, pet the petrol pipeline stops at Eldoret. So the tankers come to Eldoret to fill up, and then they drive the land route back into the landlocked part of uh, DR Congo. So what was really interesting is some of those same people in their family networks have got family uh, relatives in Uganda who are refugees but they're applying the trade through the three countries. So I think opportunity does matter. Um, the gentleman you saw in the first clip, Refugee Law Project has supported a lot of refugees to set up their own community groups, to build up their own um, social capital, to make cooperatives for different kinds of uh, um, business uh, sectors as a way to you know, uplift them. Because apart from this very small stipend you'd get from uh, UNHCR. If you really would like to see a future for your child and, and, your, and your family, you have to think how can you integrate into the economy in, in Uganda. Language is a big challenge, obviously, for those who don't speak English and those who don't speak uh, Luganda. Um, so um, that is one of the main things that uh, was also a barrier for people finding employment in, uh, in Uganda.
Marna. Yeah, I think education is, is sort of a very important uh, factor for driving people around. Uh, when you look at the camps again, like you said, uh, you can stay in the camps and you'll, you'll get like six or seven years of schooling, not very good, uh, courtesy of the UNHCR. Uh, as soon as you, you go further, you need to go somewhere else. Um, I know that, for instance, the South Sudanese, they, they fill up sort of the private uh, colleges of, of Uganda at the moment, uh, those who can afford it. Uh, but some of them got quite a lot of money out, so uh, some of them can afford it. Uh, and the same with Eastern Congo, there's not really, I'm not an expert in, in sort of secondary education system in, in the Eastern DRC, but, it, but you can see that the opportunities are probably much sort of better in both Uganda and Kenya. Uh, and those will be sort of, uh, there's a mix of a little bit of conflict, but a lot of draw of education uh, when those people decide to go out. Uh, and the same with, with the rest of the continent as well. That's one of the things I didn't mention earlier. The same things that drags people to these labor intensive areas. Um, people are drawn for education as well. Uh, you, you go from uh, sort of the periphery to the centers to, to get your education. And, and there's a big difference in, in, in how good the schools are and how good the education is on the continent. And that will keep people going around. If they can afford it, they, they will study um, another place. Yeah, I just wanted to comment because I visited, last year in May, I visited a Baroli refugee camp, which is in the Ajumani mm. district, and uh, in northern Uganda with mainly South Sudanese refugees. And they were telling me that one of the major issues for them was um, the lack of secondary education, like you're saying. So there is primary education slightly poor quality, but the, it exists. But the lack of uh, secondary education led a lot of the parents to actually send the children back to South Sudan while they were just staying as refugees in the camp, but sending the children to boarding schools or to live with um, relatives in South Sudan. When I asked them about the risk, they were kind of like, yeah, but when they stay in the camps, th some of them, they start doing drugs and they get, you know, they, they, they get problems. So they kind of took that chance. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> Uganda also uh, deregulated its uh, um, higher education system. So it's easier to set up a private university. So we have one of the fastest growth of private universities in Uganda, which attracts a lot of students from the region actually. Um, those two students, those two Congolese students, actually the, the girl, um, the young lady, she was in receipt of a scholarship that from the University of East Africa, which they give to young people from DR Congo. So, um, so the university themselves actively recruit because they know there is this demand and, and family will put resources together, sell property, etc., to give their young people an opportunity to uplift themselves and and, and and the discussion with the, uh, the students from the Francophone countries, from Burundi and from Congo who are studying in Uganda was precisely because they're coming from Francophone countries. The powerhouse economy in the region is Kenya, 
looking further afield, it's South Africa, and all those are English-speaking countries. So their parents think it's uh, an important investment to put them in, a, in an Anglophone system so that they can diversify their skills. I just wanted to say that we're going to open up for questions, comments, uh, sharing of uh, viewpoints. So um, is there anybody who would like to, to start? Or do you want to think about it a little bit longer? Uh, we have a microphone right here. People are ready. Uh, can, let's see if the um, cable can go all the way up there. But I think uh, it could help if you come a little bit closer. Hello. Um, I heard a TED talk. Uh, I don't remember the name, but it was an African woman who said that infrastructure uh, was not easy between countries in Africa. There are not that many uh, flight routes, so kind of easier to get to Europe by <laughs> plane than between countries. I don't know if that is right. And she also said that there are some visa, um, it's, it's difficult to get the visa for uh, in between countries in Africa. So <laughs> if you could uh, clear up if, if this is correct. Yeah, I mean, that's something that the, is a really big issue on the continent. And the African Union is working very hard on it to try to introduce this uh, African Union passport and a visa-free regime across the continent. But also, uh, we have very porous borders um, for, uh, between neighboring countries. Uh, and then the question is maybe documentation. Maybe countries like so South Africa are more strict in terms of documentation to show your right to work. But um, certainly, uh, that probably does not even come into play in Uganda, um, except for certain professions. So, and there's always ways around, but I think um, uh, I think one of the one of the um, uh, stories that's lost in these kind of very hot debates around migration is that people come with a lot of um, energy, you know, I, and actually uh, you could make an argument that uh, in terms of the young people who die in the desert or die in the Mediterranean. Africa's losing its best people because they're the most courageous, they're the most entrepreneurial, they're the most, we've got, we've got the most get up and go to say, I can do it, I can make something of my life. And they have to travel such precarious routes and, uh, you know, an unknown number lose their lives every year. Can I just comment on that as well? Uh, there are several regions that don't have visa requirements. For instance, if you're in the southern area, you have the SADC uh, passports or you have your passport, but it's they're sort of, you don't need a visa between Namibia or South Africa or Mozambique or South Africa. Uh, and that's part of that migrant working system as well. Um, so, so people travel freely, and of course they travel by bus or lorry or train even. Uh, so, so people do tend to travel quite a lot. Uh, very few people travel by airplanes, but they air system is, is, is getting much better than it used to be, um, mostly because of Ethiopian Airlines that have crisscrossed the whole continent now uh, and bought up smaller air, airlines and are, are doing intra-African uh, routes. But it's, uh, for instance, for the whole southern region, people will just 
go on a bus. It takes you two or three days for, from the north of, of Mozambique to, to Johannesburg, um, if you're lucky. Uh, so, so, so people will just do that. Yes. Please, uh, uh, if you want to say something, can you just share your name, at least your first uh, name? Yeah, hi, I'm, uh, I'm Sophie, and I studied uh, migration policy uh, for a couple of years, and I'm very interested in uh, the EU migration policy making and also the African migration policy making and the, and the interrelation between the two. So my question is about the African Union, and if you know if they have uh, come up with a plan for the African migration for the next... 10 or 20 years, and if you know if they are cooperating with uh, the EU. If you have anything specific, I'm very interested in exactly that. Yeah. I, I'm not sure if it can be very specific, but they, they do say that their agenda is, is to have sort of a free movement uh, or free freedom of movement uh, during the next sort of not that many years. Mm -hmm. uh, what they'll do is just take all these regional deals and they'll just couple them together. Okay. Uh, there are some countries that uh, will not sort of sign that kind of uh, agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, they had a trade deal now when Nigeria want to stay out and then some people would say, well, uh, I'm sure South Africa is going to object to some of that freedom of movement. But uh, it, it's a very, th th they, they're quite far on that process actually. Yeah, that's what I thought also, but the th problem is that we don't hear enough about it here in Europe. So when uh, the EU is constructing their migration policy, it's very Eurocentric, and they, they just think that everybody in Africa wants to come here without realizing that the African Union has a big plan for, for Africa and f the next decades. So I think there's, there's a gap in communication also between the continents. Yeah, but there's also just a gap in just the hard facts. The hard facts are most Africans want to go to another African country. They don't necessarily want to come to Europe. Um, uh, they see opportunity. They see, um, you know, they have a plan that is more rooted in terms of um, the, life ch the life choices and lifestyle they could have. Um, because migration to Europe is and to uh, the global north, uh, it's been a long-standing phenomenon. So people know what's at stake in coming here or bringing your children here. They equally have anxieties around, uh, the myths also on the continent of how tough it is to actually uproot yourself, raise a family in Europe, and actually maybe that's not the best place for them to have been. Maybe the best place would have been to have a very good lifestyle in your country or, or in, a, in a, another country in Africa. Um, and I think also the other thing, there is, a, there is uh, what I think is uh, an, another, um, you know, I think it's slightly very cynical of the EU because it um, makes a whole series of different uh, bilateral arrangements with different African countries to push the border more into Africa. So it's like this is a, why we have the situation we have in Libya at the moment. Um, and um, so... So by saying that we're, we're going to process people within Africa, we're not going to let them get to the European shores. Again, it feeds into these myths as, as if people aren't, as if there isn't a whole range of people who A, have a right to come to Europe uh, um, because they have a right to seek protection anywhere they can seek protection if they're fleeing uh, according to the UN Convention. 
um, but also there are, there are people who've been coming for generations for a whole range of reasons and contributing to the development of, of Europe and the US. Just to, to, to add to that, um, it wasn't like Europe was close to Africans 20 or 25 years ago, what actually happened, and that's partly because of the EU as well, is that countries that used to have a lot of migration from Africa, like France, they sort of toughened their laws, which meant that a lot of people that would normally go legally to France to work or study now does it illegally. Uh, and EU has been doing all that kind of policies without consulting um, the sort of countries where these people come from. Uh, and when it comes to the AU as well, I think uh, if you go to Addis Ababa and to the African Union, uh, go up to the sort of, there's a couple of policy departments uh, where there are prof professionals working on these issues. And <laughs> if you ask them about uh, the EU sort of uh, border um, uh, policies and the EU uh, anti-migration policies, because that's what they are, uh, they will be quite sort of, they, they will just say, oh, they, they find it very, it's, it's insulting. Um, it's insulting that they, they haven't sort of worked with African governments or the AU. They, they worked with certain precedents uh, and they, they keep on uh, using this myth about everybody wants to go to Europe and, and the, their whole policy thinking sort of is rooted in that. And that makes a lot of those who work with these issues, especially for the AU, quite upset. Um, it, it's, it's like I say, it's not rooted in facts. It's not rooted in a sort of a general concern for, for people that move. Thank you. Yes? Hi, uh, my name is Emilia, um, and I have, well, two questions um, related to the, the people that we saw in the video. Um, the Congolese in, in Uganda. Um, you mentioned briefly that the young woman we saw, she's on a stipend from the university and that there's a lack of secondary education opportunities for Congolese refugees. Um, but the ones who are receiving university educations, is this something that's easily or easily available to, to Congolese refugees or any other refugee? Or is this more um, reserved for the people who who can who can afford it themselves? Okay, sorry, you um, you've got uh, a couple of things uh, a little bit uh, um, muddled up. Uh, okay. One one is uh, Maren was saying about if they're in the camps mm -hmm. in Uganda as refugees, they don't have access to secondary education or a stipend for secondary education or for university education. But in the film, we were looking at both refugees, people who've come into Uganda and claimed asylum mm -hmm. and have been given refugee status, as well as people who have come ind independently as student migrants right. or who are labor migrants because they've got business opportunities in Uganda mm -hmm. and they work between Uganda and Congo, even though they're living in a war zone. Right. But um, so for her, she actually won a scholarship while living in Congo, so she wasn't a, a refugee. Uganda. She was living in Congo. The university uh, was giving 
two full scholarships for the two top students in, uh, in Eastern DRC. And she was one of them. And that's, she's on a full scholarship in, in, um, in Uganda. That's why her whole family, apart from her brother, they're all, in, they're all still in Eastern DRC. Um, so, um, so, yeah, so a lot of people live in situations of conflict and insecurity, but they can't move. But if they can get one or two of their family out, or especially if, if they're uh, children or young people, then that will be the priority. You tend to find the stories, that's the priority. Or if they do have, um, like Maren was giving the example of the South Sudanese where the husband has gone back and is work continuing the business or is able to do that in order to increase the family's livelihood. It doesn't mean that, that that's why there is a blurring of this, of this uh, category of forced and voluntary migrants. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't mean that he's not, he's still not unsafe. It's just what are they supposed to do? You know, they're extremely poor and they need to try and... and um, support their families. Yeah, because you also mentioned that in, you see South Sudanese refugees who are actually sending their children back uh, yeah. for boarding school. Yeah. So South Sudan, which is an interesting example itself, yeah. being the youngest country in the world um, and has been plagued by conflict since, well, way before it became independent as well. So are there specific areas of South Sudan where they, where they have uh, accessibility to to boarding schools, or or is that a common concept? Uh, I I would guess that will be to Juba. Uh, most uh, a lot of the refugees in 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 Uganda, especially, and and those in all of those, mm -hmm. most of those in those camps are from the Equatoria provinces in the south. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're sending their kids back to Equatoria, but I think they might do it to Juba which is considered much more safe. There's still a war going on in Equatoria mm -hmm. in spite of a peace agreement. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, uh, my name is Juana. Uh, I live now here, but I'm from Spain. So <laughs> for me, it's very interesting to see um, how, how when you mentioned the, the immigration come to the Mediterranean as a myth. Um, and uh, I, I, it's hard for, for me to understand what is going on. Because it's different when I hear you here. Uh, so what I hear when I listen, I'm journalist. I, I used to work as a journalist, and uh, so I follow so much the media in Spain. And um, it's totally different. I can't understand. It confuses me. Because as far as they say in, in Spain, there are thousands and thousands of African people that they die in the Mediterranean. The basically, Mediterranean is a cemetery of also the in the south of Africa. So uh, when you say it's a myth, I really don't understand what does it mean, that it's not real, that I get confused. Um, because in Spain, the, the, problem or the problem, the situation of the immigration is an important debate now in Spain, very important. Is deciding uh, politicians, uh, people they are choosing. We have election, and it's a very, very important topic. And people there are, it's a very sensitive topic, and it's confusing for me mm. to hear you and to hear what I, what I hear there. Um, and then, second, uh, I, also want, I also wonder uh, which role does the NGO has? Do they feel that it's a fail when? when they see these people crossing uh, 
to the Europe without nothing and people die. Which opinion do you think, or if you have any information about NGO, is that a fail for them? Do they feel that it's a fail that those people die, or um, what? What more can NGO do? Where that money goes? Uh, because I think it's very important, no? Because there are so much money that is moving, but uh, does that money go to the people? Um, uh, so I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I I would just like to comment on the first part, which was uh, about is it a myth, myth or not? I think one of the problems with the world we live in is that many things are true at the same time. So. Uh, I understand that there is a big difference between living in Spain or Greece or Italy on the shores of the Mediterranean where there has been periods of a very large influx of people coming over from the African continent. It might seem like, you know, all these Africans in Africa want to come here. But if you look at the total number of, of migrants... Uh, in Africa, and if the UN now estimates that there are 25 million of them, it means that the, the thousands who are crossing the middle, uh, I mean, the I was about to say the middle passage, which is something quite different, uh, the Mediterranean, are, if you look at the percentage, they're actually quite few out of the total amount of people who are... Uh, mobile and migrating around the African continent. Uh, but that doesn't mean that for these nations in Southern Europe who have been um, having to deal with this situation firsthand, that it's not difficult and dramatic. Mm. Mm. So uh, she yeah. was also, yeah, so it you want to comment on that? And then she was uh, also yeah. asking about the role of the NGOs. Mm. But I, I just want to comment on, on, just to put that in perspective, since 2009, they think that about 600,000 uh, sub-Saharan Africans has come to Europe by the Mediterranean, all three routes. The Western route, which goes to Spain, the central to Italy, and, and also the, the, the one between Turkey and, and Greece. Um, that's compared to uh, about twice the number of Middle Eastern and North Africans. Which means that for among uh, and ten years, uh, then you have about sixty thousand a year, sixty thousand Africans a year, or s from sub-Saharan Africa coming to, coming across the Mediterranean. It's not much when you have twenty-five million people moving around inside Africa. So, so we're not saying it's a myth that uh, there are ships in the Mediterranean. They are absolutely a very dramatic part of, of, of this uh, migratory routes. But this is a very small portion of those who moves around. And also it's a small portion of those Africans moving out of Africa. Like I said, most Africans that come to Europe, they come on a plane. Uh, so, so, but I think because of it makes very dramatic pictures, we have this picture in our head that African migrants, they come on, on a boat, which some of them do, but very few compared to everybody else that moves. So that's the point. Mm. Th that's what we're trying yeah. to change. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I think you made a, an important point when you said it's, a, it's an issue that is being um, 
um, heightened by the rise of right-wing politicians. Look at what's happened to us in the UK. You know, we're sitting in our Brexit mess, and the whole of Brexit was fought on, on the immigration issue. All these Europeans in the UK, we need to manage our borders. I mean, it's ridiculous. But look at the mess we're in. And that's why it's important that people don't let their politics get hijacked by one version of reality, which actually is not even the true version of reality. Right? So, I mean, it's, it's a fact. And to speak about the NGOs, I mean, what's happened is that uh, rescue boats are now being criminalized. So, and at the same time, we're signatories to how many human rights conventions? So, uh, I mean... I mean, civil society is us, us the citizens. We, we just need to have more of these types of conversations. It's not okay that, you know, one voice dominates the media. I mean, people, people voted for Brexit listening to a bunch of lies, and now we're in a mess, and no one knows what they're doing, and that is the UK. So. Thank you, guys, all of you, for asking very good, interesting questions. We have another question from you there. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm Josephine from Uganda. I'm interested in knowing about the refugee camps. They, re they have primary education, but after do they have like life skills development for the youth within the camps, or is it just from primary education and nothing else? Yeah. Mm. I, I think it's, it's, it's difficult from camp to camp. It, it depends on what kind of NGOs are active, but the Ugandan government uh, provide fundings for, for sort of the the basic education uh, and then of course th there are private colleges inside the camps as well some of these camps are, are massive so, so you'll have probably have universities there next year um, so, so there's a, a, there will be um, vocational training and stuff like that that are run by uh, NGOs but is it's not these camps are, are really not a place of opportunity for, for all the young people who are in there. Thank you. All right. Okay. Yes. Uh, my name is Linda. Um, and I'm for the moment uh, writing about um, Burundian refugees that live in uh, Nairobi. And I haven't heard much about, um, and maybe that's not what it's about today, but I'm looking into religion and how it intersects with migration uh, and the role of faith. Uh, I know that people sometimes, they, uh, especially in forced migration, they might uh, migrate to places where they live with different ethnic groups or with different people that would they would not necessarily live with maybe in their home countries. And so I'm just wondering um, what role faith and what these, f uh, I know there's a lot of faith-based NGOs, for example, I'm just wondering what role they have for these refugee um, societies. Uh, and I know you were talking about diaspora project that you were mentioning. I don't know if, if you also look into the role of religion and, and faith. Yeah. Um, well, I don't work specifically on religion, but you actually can't ignore it. Um, the, the, the different faiths, both um, institutional church as well as um, um, Islam, have always played a big role in the lives of the poor and the lives of the vulnerable in Africa. So they, they do involve themselves in those kind of charitable works to intervene both in the conflict areas, because many times they, they just stay put right there, so they're always also a place of sanctuary. Yeah. 
and they also uh, I know people who've actually had their passage and their papers facilitated by their churches or by fundraising efforts because some people are more vulnerable than others because maybe they know that they're on a list, you know, because not everybody has to really all the time move, but some people have to actually even be smuggled out because their lives are in danger. And then also in the context of um, Kampala, for example, where all the Congolese there are uh, self-settled, not all of them, some of them for health reasons, they get a UNHCR um, uh, sponsorship that they can't stay in the camp because maybe they're disabled, maybe they need um, access to a particular kind of medical treatment that can't be given to them in the camp. So there are a few people who still retain their, their, their benefits but are living in Kampala. And again, um, Congolese churches uh, in uh, from the Congo themselves are also they're also in South Africa. They're, they're networked all across the Great Lakes and in Southern Africa. So those kind of institutional networks also help in terms of helping find people. A lot of people get separated in situations of conflict, helping to pass news back home, being another kind of uh, institutional support network. So maybe you can look further into that. Yeah. Yes. I think uh, we're coming towards the end. Uh, do you have the chance to hang around for a little while when we round off on stage? Okay. So if suddenly you have this very, you know, urgent question that you want to ask, they're still going to be around. Uh, I'll let you have the last question. Oh, that's an honor. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I'm called Gordon Musige. I'm from Uganda. I came as a student here. And uh, I fell in love, and I'm living here. <laughs> <laughs> so that's also migration for other reasons. I thought I would go back and be a professor at Makerere. Now I'm here. <laughs> but uh, my comment is uh, on uh, the first Randi's migration in Uganda from 1959, which brought in so many Randi's to Uganda to the extent that now they were given land by the king of Uganda, and they built houses, they grew crops, and to date they have integrated, and the, the, they, are, they call themselves Ugandans, which is very good. But that kind of migration is not talked about. Yet it's very interesting to see that it's a very large number, and they came into Uganda, and they, they settled in, and they, 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 they feel Ugandan. So that erases the fact that every African wants to go to Europe. So there are many Africans moving around, around Africa and they are becoming su successful. And then the other thing that I wanted to comment about was the girl that we saw in the video that had a dream that uh, not every person has a migrational dream that ha is forced by worst scenarios. There are people who are well off, but they also have a dream as human beings. Mm -hmm. I remember when, when the, the war in Syria started, there were many clips on Facebook where they were showing Syrian refugees with iPhones, with smartphones, and many people in Europe were outraged. How can they be refugees and they have smartphones? Mm -hmm. How is it that they need our money here in Europe? But these were rich people back then in Syria, only that they, they, they were found in a situation that they could no longer live their old lives. But as people, they can also have a right to have a smartphone. Everyone loves a, sm a smartphone. A smartphone cannot be just a right to 
to you who is a native in Europe. So it's just a reminder that even refugees would want something, something good. So if they come here and they're having a smartphone, it shouldn't be something that is to be uh, looked bad upon. So my last comment is on the role of the government in Uganda with the refugee crisis. There are so many reports that it has been mis misused. So much money comes, they use refugees as a tap to get money from Western nations. And um, to, to date, we are also having problems of influx of, um, of numbers which are non-trial, ghost refugees. So that's the thing that we need to look up because the people in the government, they create numbers, numbers that they fabricate to get much more money from European Union and all those things need to be talked about in a, in a calm manner. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, it's like um, Nalu was saying earlier that, or I think maybe it was actually you, Mon, that um, I think Ugandan authorities have, uh, how can I say, financial incentives or interests in being a very welcoming host nation for refugees. And they are skimming, you know, a lot of the funding that's coming through the international aid agencies, they're skimming from it. Uh, money is probably, of course, going to the state, but also probably into certain people's pockets. I must say that they have done quite a lot of cleaning up in, in both yeah. how they, they, they sort of lost 200,000 refugees when they, they used this biometric system. Mm. So all the refugees had to, to, to give their biometrics. I, I was there in beginning of 2018, then they were sort of registering everybody with biometrics, and suddenly 200,000 refugees were sort of, oops, not in the system anymore. Uh, but, but also because people go back and forth. People go back to, to, to DRC or back to South Sudan, and then another war comes along, and into Uganda again, and, go, and you're registered again. But with this new system, it's, it's much harder to, to fake it. <laughs> uh, and they've done quite a lot with, there was a lot of corrupt officials uh, in the office of the prime minister that was skimming uh, that money. But after, after a lot of pressure, the, they, they say they cleaned up, they continue cleaning up, uh, so that's good. And um, I think we'll get more accurate numbers now. Um, well, I think I quite liked your comments because I think that I like always to return to the complexity, to the fact that, um, I mean, my own PhD, I was really fascinated by the idea of where do people feel is home and where do people feel they belong. And like you said, you fell in love and now this is home, right? Bye-bye, Makerere. So, <laughs> so um, but... Um, and I and I th it and it also goes back again to this situation of permanent stay because one of the one of the biggest things they call a myth in migration studies is the myth of return, and that people think they want to go back or they will go back one day and they may find that they don't go back because now they've built up a successful practice they think how will I be able to replicate that in Uganda I'm doing quite well here in Oslo I've got a good business. The business environment works. The business environment in Uganda is more dysfunctional. Um, my children are in school, they're doing well, and 
they, they have a steady trajectory in terms of their education. So all sorts of things crop into, you know, to change what was a, maybe originally a decision to say, I will come, I will make enough money, and I'll go back. I also know people who stick to their timetable and have returned. And then I think that um, in terms of the political climate, equally the political climate at the time of that first, uh, 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 those first massacres in the 50s of the of, and the Randis coming into Uganda, uh, the political climate maybe was more open to integration uh, and there was less xenophobia and, and less barriers to integration. Um, you could argue the same also used to apply here in Europe. It was far more easier for people to come and, and be free to make their choice to what extent they, they really lay down roots into this society. Uh, and now we have a, maybe a, a, an atmosphere that politicians can hype up in different ways that then makes people really um, think about their, their, their options. I have a friend, a colleague who um, uh, now has, she's a Dutch colleague and she's now returned, she works in uh, Utrecht. And she did a, a project in the UK uh, looking at the secondary migration of Somalis from the Netherlands to the UK. And why are they leaving the Netherlands after they've got their citizenship is because they see very limited opportunities for their children to do well in the job market and to really reach positions of seniority whereas the UK is seen as the most integrated in, ter in terms of the visibility of black and Asian people in positions of authority, and they're like, you know what? Maybe we just need to go to the UK. So you know, even though they, they, they really miss Holland, they really miss the Netherlands, they're like, life was so good in the Netherlands, but they feel they've made this sacrifice so their children can aspire to, ha can have higher aspirations by living in the UK. Whether it's true or not, we don't know, but, you know. <laughs> All right. I have one last thing that I would like you to comment on, both of you, before we round off. And everybody, of course, is welcome to stick around and socialize for a little while. Um, you know, this is the United Nations decade for people of African descent. We're about halfway in the decade, yeah? And, and uh, they've, uh, they have three focus areas, and one of them is recognition, another one is justice, and the third one is development. And I was starting to think, uh, when we know that there are so many people moving around, and many of them end up staying in their host country or their destination country, people will always strive to get a better life and to be able to have a good life for themselves and their family, but also to contribute. So in um, the name of the UN's International Decade for People of African Descent, whose focus area is, among others, recognition, I would like you to comment on, are African migrants in Africa getting the recognition they deserve for the contributions they're making to their host countries? Uh, well, obviously not in some cases. Uh, obviously not in the case of South Africa. Uh, I find that uh, a lot of people are aware of the history and, 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 and most South Africans I don't find that xenophobic, but obviously there are powers that want it different uh, and uh, there's a very virulent kind of xenophobic um, 
talk uh, and speech, and it also goes for what South Africans like to, they always like to quarrel with the Nigerians, and the Nigerians as well uh, are experts at being <laughs> not so nice uh, to, to outsiders sometimes, uh, and have answered the South Africans with attacks on South Africans. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 so I guess, um, I think in most societies in, in Africa, they, they, they recognize that migrants are there and they're always going to be there. But I think there is a danger that they get the same kind of politics we now have in Europe, with very virulent and xenophobic and, and sort of uh, populist uh, right-wing ideas. Those ideas are are very prevalent in some societies in Africa, and, and they can be easily exploited. Um, so, in, in yeah, I would say that I, I don't think uh, sort of the, the the ordinary you can't really generalize the whole continent and things like that. So, but but I think in a lot of African societies, yeah, they do recognize their migrants and they do recognize um, their contribution to society, but there's always a danger there that somebody will exploit um, sort of the tale of the other also in, in African societies. Many African countries are also struggling with things like unemployment and uh, a number of other issues. So uh, there is always like, um, opportunity to put the blame on someone. I noticed the doctor in the video, he was saying, we're not here just for asking for help. We're here to help to de develop the Ugandan society. What do you think, Nalu? Are they... Um well, it I mean, it goes back to an earlier period. There, there is another piece of work that's been done by um, a Congolese uh, professor who has um, posited a notion of... Um, the border zone. So he, he said to me once, ask someone in Goma, which is in Eastern DRC, he said to me, ask them where the border is. I bet you they'll say the border is at Kampala. So there is also the imagination of where the border is, and sometimes the border is where your networks run out. So that particular doctor, he actually studied, he's from the East, he actually did his medical training in Lubumbashi, and so he's trained and qualified in Congo. And, but he also has people in Uganda, in his family network. So they, he, again, came for that uh, language reason. Uh, otherwise, he could have stayed working in Lubumbashi. But he was thinking, I can then now work you know, in the whole of the uh, uh, Great Lakes. And uh, in the end, he stayed on in Uganda. So I think... Um, I think that it goes back to the question that uh, our friend from Spain raised, you know, uh, the role of the politicians uh, in this populist discourse of migrants are taking our jobs, migrants are taking our women, migrants are taking whatever, you know. Uh, yeah, like so many people say to me, all Nigerians in South Africa are drug dealers. But, you know, there are a lot of extremely highly skilled migrants, Nigerians, who are living and working in South Africa for decades. So you always get a full spectrum of people, just like you'd get anywhere else. And again, it is about the opportunities. And those of us who have got, and most people do know someone who comes from, who has a migration background. And rather than 
say, but I don't mean you, Nalu. So you're in this general conversation that's taking a turn in that d bad direction. And if I speak up, they say, oh, but no, we don't, you're one of us. And you're like, well, I'm only one of you because you know me. So it's, it's again that thing of, um, and also the fact of visibility. Um, I have a friend who's German-Irish, but Germany counts you as migration background as long as you have one non-German parent. But she, she looks white, no? She's German um, and she's, um, um, her father um, is uh, German and her mother's Irish. But she says she went through her whole education in Germany being called, being in the category migration background, which she, you know, she really felt as a young person growing up. And, and, and you come to the UK, which has other issues, and you realize actually that the UK has issues about how it feels about Germans. So it's, it was then another level of, of discrimination she was dealing with. Um, so I do, th I do think that, um, that recognition is there. For example, I think um, the in, in the first place, the, the, uh, pro the probably the honest policy impulse behind um, freedom of self-settlement for refugees in Uganda was a development impetus, which is, well, if they're going to move and look after themselves and they think they can do something in Kampala, go ahead, move. It wasn't really like seen as, I don't think it was necessarily done from really just enlightened principles. It was really also about the fact that those people who are leaving behind, even that little small stipend from UNHCR, are probably got enough get up and go or resources to actually get something off the ground. And I've, I've spoken to many Congolese who actually employ Ugandans, so they, you know, they've contributed. Um, so, but I, I would also like to say something about this, uh, the idea of the UN and this pillar of recognition is that I also work on the diaspora and development, African diaspora and development. And I think for a lot of young people who are either born here or came here as young people to European countries, they also have a right to claim that African heritage. And sometimes they are placed in situations of, if you claim that heritage, somehow you're not, you're not being loyal to your British identity or your Norwegian identity. And you know they have that right to be recognized that that's my heritage too. So if in whichever way they want to claim it, there shouldn't be an either or. Yeah. So. There are people working on it in Norway, uh, <laughs> trying to um, get people of African descent in Norway to uh, do something to show that we are here mm. and uh, the contributions that we are making to Norwegian society. Um, now, uh, just to round off, uh, I mean, um, UNCTAD has also done some estimations and uh, they have found um, in their economic development in Africa report that migration isn't just a burden for the host or destination societies, it's also a benefit because it represents economic growth it stimulates economic growth, actually GDP growth in host countries. It represents economic opportunities for individuals. Uh, so it does actually give a type of transformation of society, which stimulates both the country of origin and the host country. Um, if you found what we've spoken about interesting. We're hoping that you would like to come to the breakfast meeting Monday morning, which is at eight o'clock. You can find it's, yes, sorry, today is Monday. It's on Wednesday morning, eight o'clock. 
the it's about climate and urbanization. The following day, Thursday, there is an evening session at 6 p.m., which is about Sahel. All right? We hope you've enjoyed the discussions and that you learned something and that you want to keep exploring these issues. Thank you a lot for coming. We're still around. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you.